Greetings, everyone. This is Mustafa Al-Habubi, an EM physician. Welcome to a new episode of the podcast ER on the Go. Today, I'm joined by Dr. John Nemeth. Dr. Nemeth is an emergentologist at McGill University Health Center. He divides his time between adult and peds, emergency medicine, and trauma. He is the program director of the McGill University Emergency Medicine Trauma Team Leader Program. Dr. Nemeth also used to be my mentor during residency, and he's still my mentor from whom I learn a lot. Welcome, Joe, to our program, and thank you for joining us. Uh, my pleasure, Mustafa. My pleasure. Looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Joe, before we go into the case, I would like to remind our listeners that the material, material discussed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be used without the supervision of a medical specialist. Some cases details have been altered to protect the patient confidentiality. Joe, I think we're talking here today about traumatic cardiac arrest. And from our many discussions, I know that you have a good case to, show, to, to share with our listeners. Could you go ahead, please? Sure, before I start Mustafa, I think I just wanna highlight the fact that uh, you had asked me to come on to do a podcast and you had proposed many uh, topics. Uh, all of them are very good, but I think uh, this topic is probably the highest legal topic because uh, there's um, still a lot of uh, misconceptions and uh, and uh, cultural, uh, very engraved um, um, uh, ideas and philosophies about, about treating traumatic cardiac arrest uh, that uh, lines up with ACLS and and medical arrest and and I think if I can change or we can change through this podcast some people's views on this incredibly important topic I think we uh, I think uh, it's low uh, hanging fruit that I think is 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 prime for the taking so um, I I applaud you for choosing this topic okay so um, well I'll give you the the uh, the case fairly quickly it's a and uh, we got a call daytime, uh, weekend, weekday, daytime. So prime time. It wasn't in the middle of the night. Uh, basically, the story was a was a sixty year old gentleman who was a ped versus car, um, and uh, EMS reports that the patient has obvious um, uh, lower extremity injuries and deformities uh, with a BP of eighty, um, a pulse of one twenty and uh, very agitated with uh, with uh, obvious head trauma as well. And they, they gave us a five-minute uh, pre-hospital warning. So um, we'll get into the details after as far as how to prepare your team. But uh, the team uh, came together. We activated the trauma team. I was the TTL. And we um, we had a shared decision uh, uh, model about what we're going to do, our prioritization. And the patient rolled in, and it was as advertised. The patient's groaning, moaning, in pain. Um, uh, imagine a blood-soaked, uh, low, like uh, jeans that are partially torn. Uh, obvious head trauma. The patient uh, is not happy at all. Uh, in obvious, a lot of discomfort. And uh, and the EMS report is as as is as uh, as it came advertised um, previously. Well, sixty-year-old on no meds, um, hit by a car. Uh, query LOC, and basically the uh, the lowest BP they got pre-hospital was 75. So the patients rolled in, put on our stretcher and on our trauma bay, and uh, I would say probably within a minute, um, the person that was uh, uh, was uh, given the role of checking for pulse, uh, femoral pulse, uh, as we're going through our ABCs. 
uh, says that the, the patient has no femoral pulse. All right, so um, we don't even look at the monitor. We see the patient, patient's completely obtunded and clearly no femoral or carotid pulse. By that time we had done our EFAST and our EFAST specifically uh, showed uh, a positive um, uh, Morrison's pouch uh, but more importantly, um, uh, there was uh, no pericardial effusion, but a very hyperdynamic uh, left ventricle, uh, what looked like an empty heart. Um, and on the monitor, uh, this was uh, classic PEA, you know, narrow complex PEA. Um, so um, uh, at that point, by that point, the patient already had two uh, bilateral decompressions on both sides of his uh, chest, uh, which did not improve things. Um, and so the decision was made, uh, besides obviously starting blood uh, uh, right away and pouring in blood to uh, open up the uh, the chest, um, we decided to do a first a lateral, a left lateral thoracotomy, uh, which we uh, followed, following we, we, uh, we proceeded to extend to a clamshell. Um, the patient uh, patient's heart was uh, delivered from the pericardium. There was no obvious uh, injury. Uh, and at the same time, the patient uh, had uh, his aorta uh, not cross clamped, but um, the uh, the person that was doing the thoracotomy uh, placed his hand on the on the aorta, and uh, the patient uh, regained uh, some semblance of a of a perfusion with a palpable uh, femoral pulse, and then eventually a BP of eighty. By that time, the OR was a, was alerted, of course. Um, and we prepped the patient uh, in like 30 seconds to the OR, blood going in, um, and a couple of very small, very small doses of, uh, I would say, push those epi, uh, and, uh, and then the patient went to the OR, and the patient actually did very well, had, uh, uh, you know, catastrophic pelvic injuries, and I think had a liver, but the patient did well, and, and I think probably left the hospital uh, three weeks later. So that's the story in a nutshell. Wow, wow. Very interesting case. A very dramatic one, Joe. Joe, let me ask you, in general, what are your pro tips to prepare yourself and your team for a serious trauma coming to your door in like five or 10 minutes or two minutes even? So CRM, crisis resource management, I would say uh, is just as important, if not more so than the actual medical management of any very sick patient, whether that be medical or trauma, uh, uh, trauma-related uh, resuscitation. Um, and so proper CRM, uh, there are many pillars on which CR, good CRM uh, rests, but one of them is a shared mental model. And that has to be done as soon as you get the pre-hospital info, if you do have a pre-hospital info. And we were very fortunate and blessed that we we're able to have five minutes uh, to discuss the case with the team. And for me, I trichotomize, sorry to use that word, I trichotomize the patient. And, and why I like this mental model and, and this philosophy and this paradigm is because it's applicable to no matter what the injury is, whether it's blunt or penetrating. So bear with me, here it goes. Whatever the information I get pre-hospital, whether the patient's stable, unstable, or in arrest, it makes no difference to me. I get the team together and I say, listen, guys, this patient could come in stable. If, it, if the patient comes in stable, then we have time to think. 
and and discuss and we'll take we'll take it at that time we'll do things properly and and we'll have time to to uh, plan on our course of action if the patient that's that's uh, permutation 1 permutation 2 the patient comes in peri arrest um, if the patient comes in peri-arrest, this is what our priorities are going to be, and this is what we're going to be doing. And that's where role designation is, is very important and, and proper prioritization of, of process. And if the patient comes in, in arrest, this is what, our, what we're going to do. So these are the three scenarios that I lay out. And, and like I said, if you think about it, you could apply this to any, any trauma uh, case, whether it's blunt or penetrating. And uh, we usually go, uh, interestingly, we usually go uh, the downward spiral. So if, if we get a story that, like like for this guy, we got a story that he was in peri-arrest, we always think, okay, let's say this patient comes in arrest. What do we do? But it's interesting that we don't, we don't flip this. And if we get the story that the patient's in peri-arrest and the patient comes in completely stable... So if the patient comes better than advertised, we have to prepare for that as well. And it's an interesting paradigm that you don't think about that. But let's say the patient, let's say, let's say the pre-hospital is in for the patient's in arrest because EMS did not feel a pulse and the patient comes in uh, singing Pavarotti and looking well, then the, then, then the whole team gets muffled. So I think it's important to go down both avenues, whether the patient is better than advertised or worse than advertised. But for me, the way I do it is, is I line up the three scenarios. Patient comes in stable, patient comes in peri-arrest, or patient comes in arrest. And that's how I prepare the team. Wow, nice, nice. I, I love it, Joe. I, I think it takes so much of the mental load when the patient comes that everyone is on the same page, everything is going to be organized. I would like to take it a tiny bit further, if you don't mind. In such case, someone who is unstable, uh, briefly, stepwise, how would you prepare your team? How would you divide them? Um, would you ask for certain instruments? Yeah, so so um, this this patient came as advertised, right? So peri arrest, so significant hypotension. So uh, the the uh, the in this case uh, with significant trauma, uh, the role designation was fairly simple. Um, everybody, so one person on each side of the chest with a blade. Um, and somebody with an ultrasound probe. Obviously, we, we will have somebody at the airway as well in case they need uh, airway management. And usually, I would advise against uh, intubating somebody like this for many reasons uh, uh, this early on, but just basic uh, BLS should be fine. So you need somebody who knows what they're doing at the head of the bed for the airway. And of course, uh, you need a nurse uh, that will uh, will provide uh, intravascular access with a clear, clear um, designation that if the if the nurse does not get the IV in in whatever amount of time that uh, that IOs are are, are put in uh, uh, ASAP and then and then further uh, vascular access is worked on. So um, so so that's that's sort of a, the the uh, the lay of the land of how I prepare. Of course, this patient met criteria for massive hemorrhage protocol and that was activated pre-hospital. So we knew that the patients as soon as had the patient has vascular access, the, the, the patient would be getting blood products. Nice, Joe. And, and Joe, I, I noticed that when you, when you told me the case, you never committed on the airway, and now you're saying don't intubate the patients. So does our, our priorities, our mental model change from ABC to something else in such cases? 
Yeah, I think I think once again, there's the, there was a definitely a paradigm shift uh, with this, as, especially in trauma where it's you know it's flipped, right? So CAB, or even you can argue uh, from the military perspective, and they've they've been ahead of the game eons ago. They have the march, right? So M is for massive air, massive hemorrhage uh, control. And then A is for airway, and then RASP, and so on and so forth. So, so yes, the the priorities are always uh, the hemodynamics, uh, the cardiovascular issues before the before definitive airway uh, intervention. And once again, and when I mean by definitive airway intervention is is an is an endotracheal tube. I think somebody who is significantly compromised hemodynamically. Um, uh, unless there's an a, an absolute indication to intubate at that moment, uh, you your best plan is to uh, just provide basic life support, um, airway uh, you know airway patency and and uh, and uh, and bagging if if needed. Nice, nice, Joe. Thank you. So, Joe, I'm gonna move next to Bacchus since I'm a, a Bacchus geek. I want to ask you something. I want you to confirm it for me if you don't mind. My understanding is. Pocus is good, quite good, quite sensitive to detect pericardial tamponade in context of bleeding. But sometimes it can be difficult to detect or uh, say it may be false positive. And that context, if the, the bleeding has been there long enough to be clotted, then the blood will be hyperechoic. And um, it, it will look kind of similar to ventricular, ventricular wall. It will not have this hypoechoic quality of fluid. Uh, is that a correct statement based on your experience? Yeah, so so um, I would say so. Uh, definitely in the pericardium, it could look a little bit uh, like uh, epicardial fat, uh, and so so it's always uh, contextual, right? Like I, you being the POCUS expert, know that that POCUS is just one point of of data, and you always have to interpret it in the in the context of the patient. So if the patient has. Uh, I'm going to be a little bit facetious, but patient has a um, a uh, open tip fib fracture, isolated lower extremity fracture, and for some reason you decide to do a, an EFAST and you see what what could be clotted blood. Very unlikely that it's clotted blood versus somebody who has a a, um, a penetrating trauma to the cardiac box and is hypotensive, and you're not sure about that being epicardial fat or or clotted blood. Well, your 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 index suspicion is going to be higher. The other thing I've noticed, I, I've seen both in the abdomen and in the pericardium, is that the the whole blood uh, that's that's out there is not fully clot, uh, clotted. So there's always the clot. Usually, you see it uh, moving around in an anechoic uh, area, uh, and so that sort of gives you an idea as well that 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 there's, this is actual blood that just clotted. Does that make sense? It does make lots of sense. Thank you, Joe. The, the only small point I, I would might add is um, my understanding is also if you notice the way the cardiac muscle moves and what you think could be fat above it, if it's fat, it's going to move the same way the cardiac muscle moves, given that you know the patient still has a, a pulse and cardiac activity. If it's a clot, they're going to move in opposite directions. And actually, there is a good um, video on YouTube. I'll attach it to the, to the show notes. Um, Joe, any other uses of POCUS in this context? And would it differ for a uh, blunt versus penetrating trauma? So um, I think there's very there's not much utility in in, in advanced POCUS, uh, like you you know, like you're you're doing uh, for somebody in in a traumatic cardiac arrest. I think um, notice uh, when I outlined the case. Uh, um, I never said that the first priority was to take an ultrasound probe and look for lung sliding 
and look for a, 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 fa- a positive, uh, you know, because um, if, if a patient's in peri-arrest or in arrest, uh, things need to be done and we can ask questions later, right? So so I think in, in somebody like this, and I would say in trauma in general, outside of an E-FAST, um, the the utility is 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 not uh, you know is not as uh, wide as it would be for any sort of medical case. Once again, I would say that the probably in the airways uh, section uh, you could definitely make a case for using POCUS for identification of a, of a, the cricothyroid membrane, which which is great. Um, that and 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 outlining that or marking that before uh, you would you would proceed. So that's one in the context of airway. Then what I use it for is 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 uh, is confirmation of, of proper tube in the tracheal tube placement. So I I use that to confirm if I know my pa- patient is going for a pan scan. I don't ask for a, a post uh, intubation chest X ray. I use uh, POCUS to confirm my endotracheal tube. So I use it there. And and you can argue that you could use it for 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 those patients that are equivocal. I'm once again a highlight, not a patient like this, but let's say a patient brought in that is, that is tachycardic with minimal trauma, and you're not sure, and the fast is negative. You know, if you look at the IVC and in the IVC, the the vessel walls are kissing. Uh, you're 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 pretty worried, right? That that there might be some intravascular um, uh, depletion that you maybe has not become manifest yet. So maybe it can help in that sense. Uh, and then my last point with regards to uh, EFAS specifically in the context of trauma, and not once again not in this type of trauma, but in trauma in general is I would be very careful in in proceeding with your fast, looking at the peri, pericardium through a sub-xiphoid view in somebody who's altered. Let me explain. Um, so somebody who's altered, I'm saying a GCS of less than 14, and definitely the lower, I would even be even more concerned in, in doing a sub-xiphoid view. Reason for that being is that you might have a, a gastric contents that's full of uh, three liters of beer and a non-extra large pizza. The patient has a GCS of 10 and you're trying to get that optimum pericardial view, sub xiphoid and you're pressing, pressing, and you know, I don't have to tell you what can happen. So mm-hmm. in somebody altered for me, I always uh, recommend that you do a parasternal long uh, to, to look for things instead of a sub xiphoid. Nice, nice, nice. Excellent points. Perfect, Joe. Okay, so last question. And sorry again about focus. Um, uh, I hear many experts uh, in resuscitation uh, suggest that if a patient comes in a medical arrest, uh, these are the context I heard these discussions in, and 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 you do focus and you see no cardiac activity whatsoever, then they kind of feel comfortable calling it off uh, for the patient. Would you apply this also to your traumatic cardiac arrest? Yes. So. Um... There's some good good evidence, uh, and not even uh, that recent. So going back 2016, uh, where they looked at this, and uh, and since then this has been looked at as well uh, a few times. That that patient comes in whether it's blunt or penetrating, and the patient shows no signs of life, and the patient has uh, both of their hemithoraces uh, decompressed to take away, take out to to avoid the uh, the pneumotension pneumo as a cause of the arrest. And and the patient has no cardiac activity, so they have cardiac standstill on, on POCUS and no pericardial fusion. Uh, basically, that that patient's deceased. 
Okay, perfect. I got it. So if, if in other words, if the patient doesn't arrest in front of you, comes uh, with the ambulance arrested, you can use POCUS as an indicative. As uh, a prognostication uh, exactly. tour. And a, yes, absolutely. Exactly. Okay, fantastic. So I'll get to the next point, uh, Joe. Uh, before I get to it, you mentioned the cardiac box. Just to be sure our listeners uh, understand exactly what we mean by the cardiac box. Yeah. So the cardiac box... Um, is traditionally uh, defined as a line from the clavicles down to the nipples, or they may be a little bit lower cost of control margin, and then bounded laterally by uh, the midclavicular line or the nipples. So it's it's clavicles to the cost of control margin, and then the lateral, the two uh, nipples as as acting as a as as the lateral border of the cardiac box. However, uh, be very careful with this. There's some evidence that the cardiac box should be three-dimensional. So basically it should go from, from the, the right lateral, uh, so the right uh, lateral um, border, so that means the right nipple, all the way wrapped around to, to, the, peri, uh, to the sort of a, a periscapular uh, region and the posterior thorax. So it should be like a 3D-dimensional. And, and I think that's that just highlights the fact that, you know, you don't know the length of your instrument and you don't know the trajectory of the instrument. Um, I'll give you an example um, that happened uh, about two weeks ago. I got, I got a call from an up north physician about a penetrating trauma. And he, he described the patient and he goes, well, you know what, though, Dr. Namath, I'm not really worried about it because it's outside of the box. Well, so he took a picture of the, the wound and it was like one centimeter lateral to the nipple. Like, you know, so you have to be very careful uh, with, with applying that and, and, and using common sense. Uh, once again, you don't know the, the trajectory of the, the instrument. You don't know the length of the instrument. So, so you know, be careful with applying strict hard board, uh, cardiac box border rules. Joe, I totally agree. I, I remember when I was doing trauma, we got a case of a stab wound. And the stab wound was just beneath the axilla, like by one or two centimeters. But uh, I don't know how long was the knife or the instrument because the patient eventually uh, uh, happened to have left ventricular uh, laceration two centimeters, VSD, and one right ventricular laceration of one centimeter. This is how long it, the instrument went in. Touche, touche. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, thankfully, the, the patient uh, made it to, to home. Like uh, he was fixed by the surgical team, and then uh, he 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 um, he managed to be discharged home uh, safely. Joe, I, I noticed when when you were mentioning the case, you never commented on CPR. You guys never did CPR for the patient. Uh, you you went immediately to do, to do ED thoracotomy. What's wrong with doing CPR for traumatic cardiac arrests? So wrong is a is a strong word. I, I'm not quite sure if there's anything wrong, although I could maybe make some uh, some arguments for why potentially it would be not uh, uh, would be risky to do it. But the whole idea here is that if we uh, and, and this is what I'm going to say in the next two minutes, I think is probably uh, the most important part of this podcast is that if we think of all the causes of why somebody would die, so arrest uh, from trauma from head to toe. Ask yourself where CPR and or sort of any sort of ACLS intervention would help. So let's go from head to toe. So catastrophic intracerebral injury uh, where the patient dies because they their, their brainstem herniated through the foramen magnum. Is CPR going to help that? Uh, obviously, it's a rhetorical question. So yeah. let's go down. What about catastrophic C-spine injury? Same question. 
Let's go down to the chest. What about tension pneumo, tension hemo, pericardial uh, tamponade? Same question. CPR ain't helping that. What about massive intra-abdominal injury and, and hemorrhage and, and so on and so forth? So bottom line is that if you go through all your, your causes of, of traumatic cardiac arrest, CPR is not going to help that. Well, Joe, then, well, it doesn't hurt it. Well, I would argue that potentially it's not going to hurt. The patient's arrest is in arrest already, but it can hurt the participants or the healthcare workers. Well, how do what do you mean by that, Joe? Well, first of all, um, you know, there's scalpels, there are needles, and, and you're doing CPR at the same time when you're trying to put a chest tube in or even opening up the chest is a recipe for disaster for, for the person doing the CPR. And, and then I would go back to the patient as well. How could it hurt the patient? The patient's already dead. Well, it could hurt the patient because you're not doing things that potentially can reverse uh, this, uh, this catastrophic hemodynamic issue. So, um, so then one of the things I highlight to my team pre-hospital in the, in the context of traumatic cardiac arrest is if the, that the patient's going to be coming in with, with urgent santé, with EMS doing uh, CPR. We will stop this. We will not do this. And this is what we're going to be doing. And I think it's important that the team understands that why we're doing that so that there's no sort of, uh, um, you know, not, uh, there's no um, confusion and, and what have you about, about the, the process involved. The only exception to this rule, and there are very, there are only exceptions, I should say, and there are very few, Mustafa, is, is if it's a, if it's, clearly probably a medical arrest so i'll give you an example so let's say mr smith who's an 85 year old gentleman he's in he gets in his car and he's backing out from a parking lot and he hits another car and he's found in his seat in arrest you know it's the mechanism does not lend itself to to this being a traumatic cardiac arrest and of course the patient has no signs of trauma so this patient should be handled as an acls code um, you know, somebody who, I'll give you another example, somebody who gets hit by a baseball, you're doing sports medicine now, Mustafa, somebody yeah. gets hit and we just had a really nice case uh, recently, right? And in, in, yeah. in the NFL where uh, I'm not quite, still not quite sure what the, the cause of the arrest was of this athlete, but somebody gets hit uh, with a forceful blow in the chest. They can cause a uh, blunt uh, cardiac injury, which can precipitate VTAC and and VFib, and so so somebody like that with that kind of history, you can argue for doing ACLS instead of a, a, a TCA paradigm. Um, electrocution is another one. Uh, drowning is another one. So there are few exceptions to this rule, but but for the most part, if you have significant mechanism of injury, you have to follow the TCA paradigm. Got it. Got it, Joe. Okay, Joe. So. Next to that question, after so so just to summarize, so our, our, our listeners will be on the same page with us. So you get traumatic cardiac arrest, uh, your priorities are gonna be CBA. So you're gonna um, um, put that bilateral chest tube. Probably you're gonna do ED thoracotomy. You're gonna uh, clamp the aorta. You're gonna examine the heart, see if there, if there is any pericardial tamponade, empty it, and see if there is any injuries in the heart. You try to block it with your finger or the, the common method described in the literature. Next question to that, uh, Joe, in this case, specific case or in general, after you deliver the heart, do you do open CPR for the heart or no, the same principle applies? In, in, no, uh, I think I, I think yeah. if you're if you're at that point, um, I, I I don't see anyone not doing a, a, yeah. a, a cardiac massage. So we still do. Then you know we've 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 optimized uh, uh, blood products. We've clamped the uh, the um, uh, the aorta. 
and and we're we're uh, we have now a cart that's that's uh, that's borderline going to be in standstill or it, or you sometimes you even see it fibrillating absolutely then you you do your 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 uh, your cardiac massage and you can theoretically run it as an ACLS at that point meaning epinephrine but either there i would be very um uh, careful in giving you know the full math, the full doses of epi uh, we can you know i i don't think I, I don't think there's any evidence for for it in a regular case not to mention in somebody like this but but yes absolutely uh uh you can definitely do a few minutes of of cardiac massage while the blood is still pouring in hopefully getting some uh um coronary perfusion to the heart got it got it no this is also the question that i had before is uh, my understanding or on my, my my thought was uh cpr convention you know not uh, after opening ed would help by reperfusing the patient while you buy time. But I, I think the way you put it, John, makes sense. I have more uh, pressing priorities now. I have an injury around the heart. I have pericardial tamponade. I need to clamp the aorta. I need to use these one very precious one or two minutes to get to the heart, do all the maneuvers, and then I can go and do the CPR while I give the patient uh, blood to refill the tank. Make, makes lots of sense, Joe. Uh, Joe, so and then my next question is, so I think we're blessed uh, being in the Montana General Hospital tertiary care center. We have trauma team support. We can do thoracotomy. What if I'm in a peripheral uh, center, like the, the call you got from a physician up north or, you know, rural area center that doesn't have the support of um, um, uh, a surgeon to do ED thoracotomy and the patient has pericardial tamponade, what would you be your advice at that point? So um, I'll, I'll uh, give you two scenarios. One is a community hospital that's relatively close by uh, a, a major trauma center. So let's say an hour to two away. And I'll give you the other scenario where the patient's in remote, you know, as here, you know, Mustafa, we have our provinces as, uh, you know, it's it's more than half the size of Europe. So, so uh, you know, they could be two to 2000 kilometers away. So really remote. So I'll start with the really remote. I think that patient's dead. Uh, it's going to sound horrible, but there's not much you can do. Um, you know, um, you, you know, there have been, uh, there have been, thought, uh, the, you know, discussion about potentially putting in a, uh, you know, a pigtail catheter into the pericardium and, and draining, um, and then, you know, draining just so that the patient maintains some sort of perfusion and, and, and contractility, uh, uh, you know, yes, it's nice uh, in in a, in a theoretical world, but I, I can't see that uh, that working for long, if at all. As you know, we talked about this that a lot of times the the pericardial blood is clotted already, and you cannot uh, have a catheter being uh, used to to get rid of that blood. So, so I think that patient has a very dismal prognosis. Now, the patient that's that is in a community hospital, but has a general surgeon. I think a general surgeon uh, would feel comfortable with managing an open chest just for temporizing re re uh, measures. So if an emergency medicine physician feels comfortable in opening a, um, a chest and maybe even putting their finger on it, I think a, a general surgeon should feel equipped enough to do the same and maybe even do more things such as uh, potentially putting a couple of stitches into that right ventricle um, and, and temporizing things uh, and and so much so that the patient would have be transportable 
And I've, you know, and we've had this not often, but we've had it where where the 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 general surgeon temporizes things enough for one of our surgeons to go out to the community hospital and do things. So so I would say that remote areas, I think, very dismal. Relatively close areas, you should work out some sort of uh, um, of understanding with your trauma center as to how you manage these. Excellent, excellent, excellent answer. Thank you, Joe. Uh, very informative. Joe, I'm, I'm I'm done with my questions. Do you have any uh, take home points uh, from this topic to our listeners? Yeah, I think I think really one big one is traumatic cardiac arrest does not equal medical cardiac arrest. I think I think. Uh, our listeners need to remember that and understand that and bring this back to their reality because it's still very um, shocking for many people to not do CPR and waste their time in, in ACLS uh, prior to doing the uh, the things we just spoke about. So I think the, the key take home point is, is make sure you have a, a good mental shared mental model before the patient comes in, in the context of traumatic cardiac arrest and, and prioritize and understand why you prioritize those things that could actually make a difference. Excellent. Excellent. Very important points. Joe, I cannot thank you enough for these excellent points. I learned a lot myself, and I'm sure our listeners will benefit and learn a lot uh, on behalf of them and myself. Thank you very much again for a great talk and great points. Um, uh, for my listeners, for more in-depth information, you can refer to EM Cases, Best Case Ever, in which Joe did an episode already, which helped me a lot to prepare for this episode. I will leave a, a, a link to this episode in the in the episode description. Joe, thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. Thank you so much, and thanks. thank you for your listeners for listening. Thanks, Mustafa. Great job. You're doing a great job with these things. Thank you very much, Joe. Bye. Bye.